This is Shelf Marks and I'm Zoe Cummins. Today, a lonely rock, birds by post, and a walk on Baltray Beach with writer Kerry Nagokatik. Rockall is a small and steep rock rising on a bank of no great extent from the abysmal waters of the North Atlantic. In latitude 67 degrees 36 minutes, longitude 13 degrees 14 minutes west. It is extremely difficult of access. Sailors passing through this dangerous stretch often mistake Rockall for a ship. A white-capped lump of jet-black granite, it juts out of the ocean, 418 kilometres off the coast of Donegal. Its base would just overlap a tennis court, but looking up, straight up its western side, it's four storeys high. There were questions about the rock. Would it be a suitable site for a meteorological station? What plant life could exist in such a remote location? Could it help solve the mystery of the great shearwater whose breeding ground had never been found? But the biggest question of all, could you actually reach the rock? It's June 1896 and a ship, the Gronya Whale, sets out with eight passengers for this, the most isolated small rock in the world. This is a time when the search for knowledge is reaching fever pitch. Men, and they were mostly men, of science, are eager to ask and answer questions, to explore, to know, to lay claim. The men aboard, though generally wealthy, knew this would be no pleasure trip. This speck of rock embodied discovery and exploration. For this crew of geologists, naturalists and ornithologists, it held mystery and meant conquering moody seas. To the east is Helen's Reef, where the water, when low in spring, is only six feet deep. Helen, you may have guessed, was the unsuspecting ship wrecked on this sudden low bank years before. But it's June 4th and midnight, and buoyed by promising weather and an eastern wind, the Gronya Whale sets sail from Killybegs. The ship is funded by the Royal Irish Academy, and on board, several figures associated with it. The expedition has been arranged by marine biologist William Spotswood Green and ornithologist Richard Manliff Barrington. Fulmar petrels soar and glide in the ship's wake, but soon their rolling throat sounds fall away and the passengers sail through the next day. They sail into a thick and dirty sea as they near the solitary rock. Friday, June 5th, 6.30am, sounding 130 fathoms. They have crossed the great abyss that separates the European plateau from Rockall. 7am, sounding 80 fathoms. They must be near. 8am, sounding 100 fathoms. They have gone too far, but the sea runs high and the rain drives hard against them. There is no visibility. They roll and pitch for the day on the open sea, waiting for the weather to clear. The spray from the winds, the spindrift, lashes against the ship. A whole gale blows. Towards the evening, the ship approaches the rock, but they cannot see it. The next day they try again, but the rough and dangerous waves make locating it, much less landing on it, impossible. Through the haze they spot the rock, capped as though with a snowy peak. It's guano, 
centuries of dripping and drying bird dung coating the stack. The ship is hurled towards the rock base and swept away again before making contact. After hours of failed approaches and stomach-churning waves, the crew turn around and make the slow return to land. Has there ever been a calm day on Rockall? A day where you can easily see the cod and halibut, the skate and ling and haddock, saith or blue shark circling Rockall Bank. A day where discovery could be easy. Undeterred and only a few days later, the scientists set out again and again approach the rock. I hate to spoil this thrilling adventure, but they don't quite reach the rock this trip either. The swell and foam and the surge of waves are as high as the mast. They do manage to dredge the surrounds, haul up shells and sand and seabed. They observe what little plant life there is and note kittiwakes and a great shearwater. They know that the cake of birdfowl is so thick and access so perilous, sighting a weather station here on this rock will never work. The ornithologist on board, R.M. Barrington, shoots some specimen birds and they scoop them aboard. They return to Killybegs, travel back to their desks, to their lives of study, only some the wiser. But they have seen with their own eyes something barely known. They have made small discoveries and seen what few others ever will, the loneliest rock in the world. But Barrington's interest in migrating birds is all-consuming, and he'll become best known for the book The Migration of Birds as Observed at Irish Lighthouses and Lightships. His plan? He asks the lighthouse keepers dotted around the coast of Ireland to record bird strikes. You see, the light from a lighthouse could equal 20,000 candles burning in the darkness. The light's so bright that birds in flight aim straight for it. They don't realise, as we humans might, that it signals stay away, not come nearer. Lights may either show a steady uniform brilliance or be varied by flashes. Fixed a continuous steady light, flashing. Showing a single flash, the duration of darkness always being greater than the light. They fly towards it, strike it, and fall dead to the base of the lighthouse. Light gradually increasing to full effect, then decreasing to eclipse. The lightkeepers gather the birds from their night strikes and post a wing and a foot to Barrington, along with a form which outlines the hour when seen, the direction of the wind, the weather conditions and general observations. Conning Bag Lightship, North Arran, Killybegs, Hooktower, Fastnet, Tusker. For almost 10 years until 1900, when the book is published, Lightkeepers fill out his form and send him specimens. Arriving birds are more likely to strike than those departing. The thrush strikes the lanterns on every part of the Irish coast. He gathers more than 2,000. Legs and wings and whole birds arrive by post every week from all over Ireland. He identifies, then catalogues them at his home in Fasserone Wicklow. He compiles the book, Patterns emerge. The month of maximum migration is shown to be from the 20th of October to the 20th of November. At least 8% of the specimens striking were killed in the fourth and first quarters of the moon. Barrington's book shows that the Irish coast is the last refuge of thousands of starving birds in the hard winters. Arklo South Lightship, January. Large flocks of gulls drifting past, 
flycatchers and cuckoos. Sedgewalk the birds keep arriving through his letterbox for more than 25 years after he began the study and more than a decade after he dies. Tusker, 30th of April, a maybird are small curlew on the rock and yellowhammers, blackbirds, redwings, jacksnipe, siskin and brambling, shearwaters and wimbrels and waxwings, and turnstones and petrels and terns and thrushes. We'll leave Barrington's birds behind for now to meet my guest on Shelf Marks this week. It's Kerry Nagokertig. Her book Thin Places was recently highly commended in the Wainwright Prize for Nature Writing. You're going to hear new work by Kerry, specially commissioned for this podcast and prompted by some of my discoveries in the Royal Irish Academy. Kerry and I met up to take a walk on a beach and chat about writing and the natural world, discovery, exploration, R.M. Barrington and bird strikes. So we're on Baltray Beach and it's Baltray Beach is just on the east coast of Ireland um, in the smallest county, in County Lies. I only discovered, really properly only discovered the east coast of Ireland during the pandemic actually. We moved um, from the north of Ireland to the very middle just before the pandemic began. And when we were allowed to travel around Ireland freely instead of going west, which we would always normally have done, we decided we would go east and it was the best decision I've ever made. I really love the east coast and as you can see, I mean, there's, I think there are four other people that we can see on this vast stretch of land. The light is exquisite here. Light really, really does affect me. I've, I've noticed that particular light um, brings out the right kind of thinking in me, you know, much more open, kind of hopeful thought processes. So I guess that's why I'm drawn here. It's just the light. <laughs> it's just beautiful. And Baltray Beach is known not just because it's a beautiful stretch, but because there's a, a famous site on it and we're looking right at it. Yes, we are. We're looking at the, the trader, which is an old, the Irish trader. So it's an old shipwreck. It's been there. It, ran aground, I think it was 1974, so it's, you're looking at it's kind of been there for about half of a century and it's being sculpted daily by the most beautiful, original, folkloric sculptor of all the sea. And you can just see the hull just poking out of the water there, but a few years ago there was so much of it there and it just shows you the most powerful force of all really is the sea, isn't it? A hundred percent. I mean, it's we have nothing on the sea. <laughs> And so every single time I come here, I, I always wonder, is it still going to be there or what, what stage will it be at? I'm really drawn to things, feeling the effects of the natural world on them. So I'm drawn to what the wind and the waves will do in time to this shipwreck. The last time I was here, we were able to clamber all over it. And then I also wonder when my little boy is bigger, will it still be here? he still be able to come and see it or will it be gone? So this first piece, um, I think I kind of sprung to it uh, when I couldn't sleep and we'd been talking um, previously about exploration and discovery and 
I suppose, what it means to go out into the world and to bring knowledge of something back and then to kind of reverberate it out again. And I've just recently given birth. I've got a little boy who's 17 weeks. And from, from the moment when he came, he'd always been very alert, really drinking everything in. I know everyone probably says that about their own baby, but I'd never really seen another person be like that before. It sort of dawned on me after our discussion that he was really exploring without really needing to go anywhere. And so this piece is about that, things that he discovered um, through exploring the world without moving, I suppose. The first time he sets eyes upon a small piece of this wild and terrifying world, it takes the shape of a circle in the heavenly fabric above him. Pink and full, as round as it is bright, the full moon of April, risen as he emerged, newly formed, hauntingly beautiful. I hold him up to its white song as his steely eyes steady themselves, first upon the beeping machine beneath, next upon the midnight plus some sky, finally coming to rest upon my mouth, the starting point for the voice that he knows by heart and by every other fibre of his being. He will not focus on the moon, Gailuk, brightness. There is another light in the room for him and he must follow its call till morning. We lie together, awake to every single thing in those first foggy hours, falling into line with the veins of light in each other's form, ecstatically and with no expectation aside from everything. The first time he sets eyes upon a flower, it has yet to open up its own self to the rest of the garden around it, unkempt and blustery in the strong spring winds. His wee body goes almost rigid at first, then he becomes a worm or a frog, a creature of the soil or pond. I watch his sense of wonder ripple through his long, pale form, like electricity or canal water or tall red flames. It is contagious. It is exquisite. I howl like a banshee as I hold him with my postpartum unknown body. I cry like a vixen, like a professional griever without a shawl. I cry like there is nothing in this whole world more meaningful than watching him observe a poppy, not even yet in bloom, sown by my hands into the hard earth just days before he came along. The first time he sets eyes upon an animal, it is his own dog, jumping up and down like I have never seen her do before, as though she were a puppy again. I tell him how fiercely protective she was of him when she had yet to even meet him, when she could not have even nearly known how much her life, all of our lives, would be turned upside down on that day that you came home. This first creature, floppy of ear, loyal of nature, muddy of fur, sniffs him over and over, comes in as close as she at first feels comfortable. Her eyes hold something inside them, 
and I wonder if he knows what that something is. It feels like this is the very first moment we have ever really lived in this house, any of us, when he first sets eyes upon his dog. In your book, Thin Places, you write about the natural world, you write about your childhood and significant personal difficulties that you've gone through over the years. Alcohol, your relationship with mental health and, and throughout Thin Places, it seems that the natural world has been a sort of buffer from or a respite from those difficulties. Has it always been that way for you, Kerry? I suppose it, I've always been drawn to the natural world, but also don't view it as a very separate thing. So I think I, I'm drawn outside because I feel like that's where I, I will meet myself a bit easier. And that can be good or bad. So it hasn't always been a, a place of solace, if that makes sense. It has often been the place where I would have experienced trauma as well, because when we when we meet parts of ourselves that we normally keep quite neatly hidden if we're at home or if we're in the company of friends when we meet those parts in the outside world they're much more raw and much more honest and harder to ignore or to shoo away and particularly when I'm by the sea I'm, I feel more me when I'm walking by a stretch of water or swimming in a stretch of water by the sea than really at any other time, I think. That is why I'm drawn to the natural world. I feel like that's where I am me when I'm in the outdoors. So we're looking at a host of really beautiful birds just now. Um, out really quite far on the horizon, there are a number of different gulls and I've, I'm really clueless about gulls so I won't even try to guess what they are. But I did see earlier we watched cormorants, a beautiful line of seven cormorants just in the sky above us. Um, there are some sandpipers the whole way along the shoreline. There are sandpipers and they're so they're such funny little birds. They they kind of jitter around. They're quite jittery birds. Um, much further on, right out past the water, when we walked up earlier, we watched a gannet diving. We have here little terns um, nest here. This is a protected area, Baltreas. There's a really beautiful project, the Louth Nature Project, but it's a protected area. And so I'm just watching a dog running off a lead up there and it really shouldn't be. <laughs> Every time we come here, I encounter something different, something that I haven't before. I find a woodpecker feather the last time I was here on this beach. And I, I questioned my friend who identified it. I said, there's no way it could be. Um, and she said that, yes, it was probably because just out of our view um, are the Mourne Mountains and there are woodpeckers there, so potentially. <laughs> and do you know much about what we're looking at here? I mean, there's, we're looking out to sea, but there are a few um, yeah. landmarks ahead. Just above us, kind of jutting out at the end of the beach, um, there's a, a stretch of land and there are two, I think they're concrete, one slightly bigger than the other, um, and they're, they, they look like lighthouses, but they're not. They're they're just concrete. I'm not entirely sure what they are. Um, I've never really looked them up and I, yeah. As a writer, you're not tempted to know and research absolutely everything. You're, you're able to just let some things go and not know. Totally. I maybe always err on the side of not researching. <laughs> um, I'm quite experience driven. 
rather than knowledge driven. I think it's probably why I don't really view myself as a proper nature writer because I just, like I said about the gulls, you know, I, I wouldn't have a clue. I wouldn't be able to identify one from the other. And, and that's, I think that's okay because the experience of them being there for me is the same. And I feel as much respect for them, even though I can't name them. Naming is important, but one doesn't, for me, one doesn't have to know how to name everything to, to love it. For a long time, I had deeply intense dreams and they were very beautiful. They were filmic, really. The nighttime was a real sanctuary for me. Um, and I started drinking quite heavily in um, the sort of a number of years ago. And I realized that my dream life had been affected by it. It had stopped, the dreams had stopped. They had become much less creative and and I suppose that came to me as a sense of loss. And I grieved for that time of my dreaming life for the whole time that I drank, really, without fully realizing that one could mourn one's lost dreams, really. Um, and then I wrote Thin Places and I spent a lot of time remembering my dreams, remembering dreams that meant a lot to me. And then I fell pregnant. Before I knew I was pregnant, I began dreaming the same kind of dreams I've had before and the first one came it was I dreamed of fog outside the window in August and actually I just returned from Baltre which is where we currently are <laughs> the night that we came back from Baltre I dreamed that there were ravens knocking at the window and there was fog outside even though it was blisteringly hot very beautiful weather I woke up knowing that something had shifted um, and I sort of, I wonder, I'd stopped drinking three years beforehand, but they still hadn't come back. And something in me would like to feel like my, my little baby brought my dreams back. Um, I am a bit of a, <laughs> I don't know, a dreamer, even in real life. So I suppose, yeah, that's why I'm drawn to it. And what's wrong with dreaming, huh? Nothing. It makes the world go round. <laughs> the dream that I am recalling, hummingbird. Early summer is the season. An unrevealed Scottish island is the setting for this, the dream that I am recalling. This dream that I am recalling is all bright white light and dappled glimmerings. It is all hazy as a morning lost to love or illness or grief. It is full of much that is unknown, this dream that I am recalling. I stand at the top of the garden path, a tall sycamore in front of me, a yellow door behind me, watching as the dream unearths itself right before my tired eyes. I am root-bound. I am hungry. I am anxious and unsure how the memory will land in me, what trace it might leave behind. I watch the younger dream me enter a copse, a sparse clearing within a crowded evergreen forest and I wonder immediately if the location might be the Isle of Mull. She walks around, this girl, in a circle. She has never been here before, but she acts as though she has somehow. She is eager, she is thin, she is alone. The dream is on a loop. The same motion, the same circle, the same quietude. 
until it breaks, the quiet breaks and the dream gallops towards an even greater unknown. She is no longer alone. She knows it in her core, but she is far from shaken. A bird has entered the circle and it is flying backwards. It is parakeet green and flamingo pink. It is kingfisher blue and it is flashes of bird colour she is oblivious to. It hovers. It is never still. It feels like a dream within a dream, ekphrasis. She is even less alone than before. All at once, an old man enters the loop. He is blonde. He is gentle. He is alone. You have a choice to make. You can return, go back to where you started out from and record this bird you have discovered, put its name down in ink. Or you can stay with it a little longer, draw in close, look, really see the bird. But you cannot do both. You can never do both, you see. I don't remember where our son was when we discovered the flycatcher in our garden that day. Our blonde, gentle son. The one they all say looks like he has been here before. And in Thin Places, you write so beautifully about place and uh, your, your experience of the natural world. There's memoir in it, there's essay. Uh, and a lot of the writers that I've been reading in the Royal Irish Academy are, you know, they're, they're naturalists, but they keep themselves out of it. They're more about studying, about observing, about understanding, about counting. Um, what do you think that you as a writer or writers now owe those type of writers? That's a really interesting question and um, I loved reading about Barrington and, and getting to know a bit more about him. I wanted to come at the pieces fairly blank and not to be bogged down by anything that I read before. But since, <laughs> since finishing them, I've, I've researched Barrington quite a lot and I'm really taken <laughs> by his story. And what I was really drawn to um, since I've been reading about, about him and his record of of ornithology he you know he he gave us so much knowledge on on how migration works like bird migration but i i read a really good piece by rosita boland and she talked about the i suppose the labor that went into it that we didn't really think of so for instance the lighthouse keepers who would send barrington you know he'd requested a, a leg and a wing of common birds that, that would strike the lighthouses because birds, of course, are drawn to light. Many of them would, would die there. Or if it was a rare bird, he wanted the whole body sent. And then the, these lighthouse keepers would then send these off with these written letters, you know, that, that Barrington didn't keep. I was intrigued by that, you know. I would have wanted to read those letters. I would have wanted to speak to the postal people who were delivering these bodies of dead birds would want to know the effect of the huge storms of one of the Januaries 
you know, where, you know, vast amounts of snow buntings were, were blown astray and and even, you know, the starlings were eating other dead birds, which would be really uncommon. I wanted more, I wanted to know more about those people. Barrington has given us this huge wealth of knowledge, but the knowledge was given to him. And I think with all exploration and discovery, what's really important now is to think about what has been sacrificed by others, those unseen and unheard voices, I suppose. And that's, I guess, something that I can bring into my work. I'm always trying to not make it about me, even though it might not seem that way. I want to hear those other voices, I suppose. So that's a really interesting take. So Barrington, he did give us a wealth of information, but he had a huge team, didn't he, really? Yeah, he was the original data collector, you know. I'm intrigued by the fact that he began in his 30s. So uh, something about that uh, um, age for me, that's when I began really wanting to know more, I think, properly, really wanting to know more. And I suppose he he had the, the, he had the finances um, to put into publishing his, his book. But I guess it's, it's always about the collective so you know thinking about those lighthouse keepers i just can't stop thinking about them the lighthouse keepers and and their fallen birds and you know that's that's where i'm at with barrington <laughs> so one of your first forays into writing when you were a child was actually about a bird strike which is something that barrington spent you know 20 years observing and charting. Yeah, I'm almost not shocked that there is that connection because I do find that in my life things draw in close to me that that I'm already kind of taken by. I think for lots of people that happens, but um, I do use the image of a bird strike in most of my work <laughs> and I have done since I was very, very young. Um, this, the piece I'm about to read, Albatross, it was a story that I wrote when I was incredibly young. In the story it's an albatross, but it wasn't an albatross in real life, it was a gull. I wrote this piece about a, a boy and a girl on a, an island and they find an albatross. And I've written lots of different pieces about birds being found um, dead or not quite dead, or about to be dead. And I actually do experience it quite a lot. I do come upon fallen birds quite a lot. Um, yeah, and this piece, um, Albatross, is me recollecting the story I wrote as a child. They always told us to write what we knew, but that never really worked for me. I cared not a single jot for what I knew for I knew nothing really. And so I wrote of all that which I wanted to know someday. Islands and boats, lights that flashed on waves, waves that crashed on rocks. I wrote tales of loss and longing, tinged with the unknown lure of life. I wrote of ice-filled lands and singing creatures, of monsters, and myths and dreams. I wrote of birds I still have never managed to really see. The first proper story was about a boy and a girl, as fools say all stories are about. A boy and a girl on an island beach in winter. 
a boy and a girl on an island beach in winter after a vast loss. A boy and a girl and an albatross. It was huge, the bird was. It was as vast as the loss and just as white. The albatross was dead. Newly dead, in actual fact, according to the boy. I cannot for the life of me recall the boy's name. I'd called the girl Isold. I'd planned on a magpie in the story's early days, but sure look it, things change sometimes. It can't always be black and white, you know. Do you even get magpies on Hebridean Islands? Do they nest there? Or do they just visit with the ferry, if at all? I don't know if the younger me had this much discussion with herself when it came to giving the shiny silver thieving, blue feather shimmering bird the heave-ho and replacing it with a bird literally lifted from the world of fated epic. Could the lad have been named Sam? Would I have been that obvious in the road I went down? It doesn't matter anymore, of course. The point is that the two of them found, in the middle of a wildly unsettling week, a dead albatross on the beach beside their homes. The point is that they carried it along the beach, over wet sand and the remains of the guts of that day's tide, until they got to the girl's house. I suppose the point is less about what happened next, and more about what it means when a mind is drawn to imagery, the like of that at such a young age. I wonder if the point is that I still see them sometimes, that girl and boy with that albatross. I still see the emptiness in its eye, the one that had not yet fully closed. I still see the scene play out in full when they decide what they will do with the lost bird when they are able to. And it still leaves me close to tears, the sheer allure of it all, the unimaginable pull of the wild, the dead, the macabre, on any of us. The way a bird can be bigger than a whole host of other things and still die right there on a small, quiet stretch of land, a sandy stretch of land. The way death can be a kind of discovering, a kind of unearthing, a way to understand somehow. And how dead birds find us all eventually, in the most folkloric yet brain-numbingly ordinary way. Thanks to Kerry Nagukadig for her beautiful words. Thin Places is published by Canongate. From the Academy Library, I used a few different resources to write this week's shelf mark, including Notes on Rockall Island and Bank by William Spotswood Green, and, of course, The Migration of Birds as Observed at Irish Lighthouses and Lightships by R.M. Barrington. I also dipped into Nature in Ireland, a Scientific and Cultural History, edited by John Wilson Foster thanks to the Royal Irish Academy. This podcast is funded by the Arts Council Literature Project Award.